Hey guys, welcome to Advanced Refrigeration Podcast. Before we get started, here's a word from our sponsor. Hey, have you guys heard about the new Parker Sporlin S3C case controller? Contractors, how about a case controller with a one-day setup, access to more data, and efficient system operation for the end user? The S3C series of case controllers provides contractors and store owners automated configuration and network integration. You can maintain a precise food temperatures without supervisory control. Easily monitors to prevent product loss, and Bluetooth provides a local connection with the TechCheck mobile app. The series includes case controller display module, a valve supporting open protocol, communication via BACnet and Modbus, Sporlin's mobile app, the TechCheck, allows communication with the S3C case controller to enable proof-of-work, diagnostic, and data sharing. The S3C communicates with building automation systems and works with Sporlin's SPW series of pulse width modulation valves, also the SSR series of electronic expansion valves. Visit Sporlin.com for more information. It's 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Advanced Refrigeration Podcast. You're here with your host, Brett Wetzel and Kevin Compass. What's your week looking like this week, buddy? Oh, just a lot of cleanup, doing a bunch of little tiny startups here and there, and uh, cleaning up some messes in some other states that I don't want to go to. Where are you going? Oh, I drove, well, yesterday I drove across three states, Indiana, Illinois, and into Wisconsin, then back across three states home. So trying to trying to avoid that at all costs until uh, I'm out of town again. Did your van break down the other day? I lost power steering for about three hours. <laughs> so I drove almost all the way home with no power steering. Then it just started working again. So I don't know. I'm just kind of hoping it doesn't break again because, uh, yeah. God only knows how long that part's back order for. <laughs> um, I'm down in Houston this week. I'm doing some training uh, with some guys uh, trying to get them back up to par where they should be as far as um, just having a hard, real hard time with some oil systems. Um, and that's really it. So we're, tonight we're going to talk about glycol. Or glycol? Is that what you're saying? Glycol. Depends, <laughs> depends on what state you're in. In Kentucky? Yeah, once you get a little bit more farther south, it turns to glycol. Well, it's almost like down here. Uh, no one pronounces, uh, like, okay, as long as I've been alive, it's been oil. Down here, it's ol. Which is messed up, because then I ask them a trick question. I'm like, so what do you call the thing that hangs in an evaporator? Coal? All right, so it's not just it's not just the oil word; it's, it's that word too. Jeez, old Pete. So I figured we uh, kind of go over some uh, glycol racks. You know the other uh, 
the bastard child before CO2. <laughs> it, it, it's a love-hate relationship right there. I mean, uh, the glycol was real big a couple years ago. I mean, it's kind of like died out a little bit. And like the last 10 years, it's kind of, you know, it's starting to go away a little bit. So the reason these or these stores are putting glycol in is for one simple reason only, and that's to reduce the charge in the rack, to keep the refrigerant charge small and in the room. So with glycol, they're able to have a centralized plant, and they're able to keep all the refrigerant in the mechanical room or on the roof, and the glycol takes care of it in the store. Now, there's, in my opinion, there's more drawbacks to glycol than there is uh, – uh, benefits. You know, obviously you get the benefit of having less refrigerant in the store, but now you take the penalty on the energy side because it uh, it takes more horsepower to cool a second median that median is cooling uh, cases. So you lose that efficiency because now you're you're cooling down glycol to cool down cases. So you have you know a little bit of a heat exchange failure there. I mean, instead of where you could, uh, you know, increase your suction pressure and, you know, float a little higher on cases, you know, where you're direct, you have direct expansion, you kind of lose that with glycol because now you're, you have to run a colder SST to cool down glycol to cool down cases. So that's where you hit this energy penalty at. And obviously there's the penalty and the worst part about glycol is the mess that it can make when there's a leak. And, you know, unfortunately, they don't make a glycol leak detector. So um, there are some facilities. Um, most of the facilities that I've ever dealt with uh, dye the glycol blue. And if you ever have to make, you know, make the mixture, uh, don't get that shit on your hands. Uh, we had a system out in Connecticut where some greenhorn left the uh, the lid off the blue, uh, the blue dye. And the wind knocked it over and went all over a white roof. That was about 63,000 square foot. It was amazing. Yeah, it's called getting smurfed up here. <clears throat> Same. Yeah. So um, that that dye, um, there are some uh, customers that don't allow you to dye the glycol, which I think is the dumbest thing in the world. Um, do you know? Uh, Costco, number one person that uh, refuses to let you dye the glycol. What's the reason for it? I have no idea. I believe they said that it caused some kind of chemical reaction or it was going to stain. They didn't want it staining anything, but uh, Costco does not let you dye the glycol at all. And if you do dye it, you get to dilute it until it's gone. That's fine. so it's uh it's kind of a nightmare, you know, try to find leaks, you know, with that stuff. But to be honest, like they, they do their glycol a little bit differently than most. Uh, most of their stuff's hard pipe. There's no, no plastic, no very little unions. So I mean, the leaks are few and far between. And then all the all the solenoids where most of your leaks are, are all on a valve station rack. So it's a lot easier to find leaks. Gotcha. the The mixture of the glycol usually they try to do about thirty five percent mix, which is basically you know thirty five percent glycol. And 65% uh, distilled water. Do not use regular run-of-the-mill water. Um, <clears throat> they um, they run this mixture typically to maintain, I believe it's uh, eight-degree freeze point. 
Um, you have to verify this with a refractometer. Um, basically, it's the same thing that ch checks the freeze point of, um, of antifreeze, you know, for you guys that live up north. Making sure that your, your engine block is going to crack, you know, because of you not having the dilution right in the antifreeze. So, you know, like I said, typically it's it's 35%, which gives you a freeze point of 8 degrees. Um, that's why a lot of your uh, freeze protections are typically set for about, uh, usually about 10 or 15 degrees. Is that right, Kevin? Uh, usually it's around 13 to let, actually 7. So there's there's a difference between freeze and burst with, like, glycols. So that's one thing you got to realize like so there's a freeze like slosh protection what Brett was talking about from like seven to eight degrees to 35 percent and then there's the actual like when it's going to hard freeze and burst so that's like closer to like minus 13 so you there's two different ratings if you look at propylene glycol and uh if you look on there that uh that you want to be concerned with obviously you don't want to run that cold if you start running colder than that like obviously Obviously, if you start running, like, say you need 10 degree glycol, you're gonna have to change the mixture up. It may be 40 percent, it may be it may be 45 percent. But this is one thing that I've seen messed up at stores before. We've had issues with is that glycol percentage matters a lot because those pumps are sized off that uh, glycol percentage. Because the higher the concentration of glycol, the larger the heat exchangers need to be the larger the piping needs to be, the larger the uh, pumps need to be because it requires more horsepower and more more uh, space in the, in the heat exchangers in order to move uh, a higher concentration of glycol. It takes, up, it takes up more space and it requires more capacity. So the rack is also going to need more capacity too. And we've had a couple stores where somebody, they had a leak, you know, they saw a barrel there. They thought it was 35% and it ended up being 100. So now the mixture's off, you know, and now maybe 40% or 45%. We've had to take them and dilute them before. You know, that can cause a, a whole, you know, slew of issues. We had one store was on a condenser skid and we couldn't make head pressure on a bunch of uh, singles. We had like uh, 10 or 12 single uh, compressor units running uh, chiller, little chillers and uh, CO2 rack. And we couldn't get heat exchange out of them because the glycol was at like uh, 50%. It was 50 to 55%. It was supposed to be like 40%. So the, the mixture was so strong that uh, it wasn't picking up heat exchange because the heat exchanger was uh, undersized at that point. As soon as we diluted it back, we got a lot of our heat exchange back. Isn't it going to be a little bit more sluggish through through the pipe because it's basically a thicker solution as well, which might put some more wear and tear on the pumps as well? Well, yeah, that's why they end up, you know, upsizing the pumps when uh, you end up run into situations like that because you're pumping a thicker fluid; it's more dense, so your your pump curves are all off. So that's one thing to like really pay attention to, and then vice versa. The other point, if your freeze point is too is too high, meaning you you don't have enough glycol in there, you could run into a situation where you start frosting over the heat exchange, and uh, you uh, frost over your plate and frame heat exchanger or your braze plate, whatever you have. And there's really small holes in that thing. And you could lose 10 to 20% of that thing. And uh, you, you could lose that uh, heat exchange in there and or cause flood back or you're going to have uh, 
you're not going to be able to maintain glycol temp. You're going to have messed up pressures. So that's just one thing to keep in mind, you know, when you're looking at stuff like that, you know, if you're having problems like that, that's, uh, you know, check the glycol percentage, regular refractometer. You can get a refractometer at Granger for like, I don't know, 40 or 50 bucks, you know, so that, that's one thing to keep in a truck if you're doing a lot of glycol work which we have a lot of cooling towers up here. I'm in the major metro market, so we have a lot of uh, cooling towers and dry coolers up here. So we use a lot of uh, glycol for condensers. And the way, the way these things are usually piped is, you know, you have a regular conventional rack, and basically you'll have, you know, basically two or three liquid lines coming out of that main liquid header um, that are going to, you know, like I said, two or three heat exchangers and a suction coming out. Uh, basically going back to the rack. A lot of times they will put in a, a shell and tube heat exchanger coming out of the suction line to basically, you know, because you're going to have that, that heat exchanger set for about eight degrees of superheat typically. Um, so we all know that, you know, we're supposed to get about you know, at least 20 degrees going back to the racks. So we want to make sure we're not running too rich of a superheat coming back. So the heat exchanger is there to basically assist, um, you know, making sure that we don't, uh, get that under 20 superheat coming back to the rack, but also we get the the benefit of, you know, subcoiling that liquid just a little bit more um, coming out of the main liquid header going to the heat exchanger. Um, typically, like some of the other stuff that we talked about, they usually have a seven degree TD. So if we're trying to operate um, a 25 degree fluid solution, um, we're going to maintain probably about an 18 degree saturated. Some of them are way less than that now. Like I did one the other day that had a three degree, uh, approach temp so th this is where that you know approach word comes back into play that you know we talked about in our uh one of our first podcasts so that approach you know uh it's going to be your saturation temp versus uh leaving you're leaving glycol temperature so that approach temp basically td that approach temp is uh i i've seen them as low as two to three degrees it depends on the load too so as the load goes down the heat exchanger the more uh, efficient that heat exchanger becomes because it's not loaded as much. So, I mean, there's some with, uh, you know, past three to four is, is, is considered poor approach. So that's something you should be like, you know, logged in on during startup. So you could, you know, you could check on the, you know, the chillers, you know, performance as it goes on. So those, but those heat exchangers are, you know, designed for a certain amount of flow. And if the flow is off, you're going to have major problems. Those heat exchangers, you know, they'll have on the on the outlet side of the glycol, you know, so you have the glycol going in and then the glycol leaving. Um, they have to have a, a valve on the outlet, uh, which people commonly mistake as just a regular shutoff valve. But uh, there's typically numbers on the valve. Those are circuit setters. Those circuit setters, if anyone here is familiar with chillers, um, they have to be set to a certain, uh, certain level to keep a certain GPM, gallons per minute, going through that heat exchanger too fast of GPM and you're not going to exchange any, uh, any uh, energy coming from the refrigerant going to the glycol uh, too slow. And basically the valve is going to shut down because it's, you know, it's, it's just not, it's going to flood. It's going to flood out. It's, it, it's not passing the glycol fast enough to, to exchange the heat that it's actually rated for on the refrigeration schedule. You know, normally, on a regular DX rack, we're, we're always accustomed to seeing SST. Uh, on any kind of glycol rack, you're going to see behind every single case and beside 
every single uh, heat exchanger in that system, you're going to see a GPM number. Uh, not only do our uh, main heat exchangers have them um, at our rack, um, but basically all of our cases, because they are considered loads, are going to have the, the circuit setters on those as well. Um, there's a meter that you can buy at 1700 bucks. I don't do that. You can either use uh, those valves can be sized per a, uh, what the hell is that thing called? Uh, it's almost like a ductulator. Um, basically, we'll give you, you know, your, your pressure difference, the size of the valve, and how many GPM you need. Or there's an app on your phone. I believe it's HY Tools that you can utilize to actually, you know, uh, you know, that gets you extremely close. Um, you know, I had a rack that I was doing training down in San Antonio and I was, it was at a Walmart and all six compressors were running. Glycol wasn't maintaining temperature. And I plugged in the numbers of, you know, what GPM that I needed, what the Delta P was basically on the glycol side, my discharge to suction side and set the circuit setter to where it needed to be. The glycol instantly rattled down to, 17 degrees and all the compressors shut off and then instead of running six compressors it was only running two and it was the first time that that racket ever floated up ever yeah so one big thing is which uh me and a bunch of guys dealt with this last year when we took over a big account with uh up here with that that primarily only has medium temp glycol racks um one big thing is when you increase the flow you increase the load on the heat exchanger so as you increase the flow, you could almost double the load of the heat exchanger. So what that ends up doing is that ends up putting more load on the rack. The same thing Brett did, like we, we took some of these stores that were running seven, eight compressors, seven, eight, six cylinder Carlisles, and they had head pressure problems all summer long. They couldn't keep up. They were running sprinklers and everything on these brand new racks. They just couldn't keep up. We ended up taking the circuit setters, resetting them for the GPM they had, and uh, tuning the pumps with some v the VFDs in the pumps and getting everything the flow right on the racks. These things overnight just calmed down. We went to cycling compressors now properly. We went from oil that wasn't returning to the oil returning properly now. Like half of them, we ended up taking like you know five to eight gallons of oil out of. Because now that we're moving the proper amount of flow, there's not oil sitting uh, in the heat exchangers. There's oil, not oil cycling around the system as much. It's, it's staying in the separator where it should be. So, like, that flow is one of the most important things in the glycol rack. And once these are set, they shouldn't need to be set again. They shouldn't be, need to be fiddled. So, in these circuit setters, in through the stem, there is a uh, – uh, you put an Allen key through them, you can lock them. So what you do is you, when you once you get it set and commissioned, you tighten the Allen key down, and then it can't open anymore. You can close it, you know, but you can't open it anymore. So that way you should be able to, once it's locked and set, you should be able to open it all the way out And uh, if you do have to do anything with it. Because it is a shutoff, too. You can use it as a shutoff. I mean, I, I don't like to, but I also mark, mark the valve top where it is, and then I mark the sides to see if somebody's played with it. Um, what I use for this, because I don't have that pressure port manometer like Brett was talking about, I use, they're called Pete's ports. They're like basically hydraulic needles that go into the uh, into the uh, little little taps on there. They go through the little rubber pieces, and I put uh, from the Pete's ports, you can get them for like $10 online. 
they're like Pete's ports, test ports. Um, I get adapters to go to quarter inch flare and I use my, I use my field piece probes and I get my pressure drop across there that way. So I get my Delta P across the valve that way. And then I use that HY tools app to calculate my, uh, uh, what my GPM should be at, you know, whatever my flow is. So your GPM is going to be on a rack manufacturer's legend, say it's 300 GPM and you got two chillers. So you take that, each chiller should be 150 GPM. So you would take that, you plug it in the HY tools app, uh, you, whatever, uh, whatever circuit setter you have, and then you would plug in your Delta peak across it. And then that'll give you a ballpark setting. Say it's like 4.2. Set those things to 4.2, see how they act, and then you lock them in. And then that chiller should be pretty much commissioned and set, and you should have good flow. You should have good temperature. Now, I'm going to warn you guys, we had a situation, was it two weeks ago, disaster situation, uh, we're a subcontractor for somebody else, and there were some issues, and we had been to the store in a long time, and I showed up there. Uh, chiller on the roof, lost an EEV. Okay, so uh, it's a Sunday. It's a big spoiling valve. Everything's on back order. We're kind of screwed at this point. So I do my best to get it running, and we order the valve. We finally find it somewhere, and I uh, get the valve in. Another guy goes puts the valve in. The store has been down. It's 95 degrees. We're above, or almost 100 degrees. We're above design in Chicago. Everything in the store is warm. He gets the rack back going. He, uh, you know, gets everything starts pulling down a little bit. So takes off. That guy ends up there at three in the morning. It's still not working. Struggling. Uh, we had marked the valves with somebody that came back before us and so after us, me being there, and ended up snapping the uh, the stem off the circuit setter. So those circuit setters are their brass gears on the on the top, and the handle is plastic. Okay, well, it's cold. Plastic breaks easy. So if you go to wrench on these things, you'll strip out the plastic. And when you do that, it keeps turning and the dial's off now. So what I do when I do these, I close them and then count the number of turns open. So say if I don't go by the dials anymore. So I'll go by the, the number where it's it's 0.1 through 9 where, before it rolls to a uh, whole number. I will count the number of turns when I do that because I've had this happening like three times now where uh, guys have snapped the handles or, you know, the stripped it out and now it's off and you, you don't know what, what the actual circuit setter's at. And this ended up, what ended up happening is one of the circuit setters was almost wide open and the other one was closed down. So we ended up uh, starving one chiller and uh, overfeeding another. So what happened is it looked like we had one valve at 100%. One chiller was at 100%. That was the valve of full, the 100% of flow. It couldn't keep up. And the other chiller was at like 10 degrees of superheat, chilling at like 15% open. The glycol was like 50 degrees. It should have been 100% open too. But it was down because uh, somebody choked the chiller down so much it couldn't feed. It was barely had, had bad any flow at all. No, I've had them. I've had them snap off before. You know, like, like you said before, you know, you can figure that each turn is is one whole one whole number, 
And then, you know, just think of it as almost numbers as a clock, but instead of, you know, one through 12, just, you know, zero through zero through nine. Yeah, the other thing is that so every case is going to have a circuit center in the outlet of every coil. So every case, if the circuit centers are there, now they serve two purposes to balance the flow and sort of balance the temperature of the cases. Um, so the way these cases should be piped, it should be first in, last out, meaning the first case to get fed off the supply should be the last case on the outlet, outlet of the, uh, the return. So if you feed your first case with glycol, then that that outlet of that case should be all the way piped all the way down and go to the farthest uh, end of the return. You do this so that way the first case doesn't you know get all the flow and second and third are kind of starving. So you don't want the first case to get too cold. So that's why it's first in last out when, uh, when you pipe glycol cases. And the other thing is that the circuit setters there to kind of balance it. I mean, you want to get the flow set, but you also don't want solenoid cycling a ton. There's only two ways to avoid solenoid cycling a ton, and that is you choking it, you know, speeding up the flow a little bit as you, because as you increase the flow on a coil, now you're decreasing your heat transfer because the glycol is moving faster. As you choke back that flow, now you're increasing the heat transfer. You may not you know, get enough because you might have enough flow, but like you're going to increase your heat transfer on that coil because now the glycol is moving slower through the coil and it's picking up more heat. So you got this fine line you want to walk there, but you don't want to see circuits cycling solenoids on, you know, hundreds of times a day. That's not going to last and it's not going to end good. So the only other thing you could do is warm the glycol up. Float the suction. Yep, and that's one of the most important things in the glycol case because once you get solenoid cycling, you get this vicious cycle you enter of pump performance and pump pressure alarms. So as you start shutting off cases, especially if you start shutting off a bunch of large loads, what ends up happening is you shut off that coil. Okay, you shut off that return of that coil. It's not moving anything. Say if you lose two or three lineups at the same time, you may have cut 80 GPM or 50 GPM off that rack, or it doesn't seem like a lot, but in, in the interim, it, it could be, it could make these nuisance uh, pump low pressure alarms. Cause we want to keep that pump pressure, like at least 10 pounds, you know, minimum, it needs to be whatever the store design is. But if you start hitting like two, three pounds, five pounds, depending on what the customer alarm is, you're going to start getting these nuisance case uh, pressure alarms. And a lot of that is due to cycling on the cases, on the solenoids. And most stores, we could pretty much cut that out by just floating the suction and getting the glycol up. I mean, because generally you don't need 18 degree glycol. So say we had a bunch of stores where Hill designed it were 15 degree glycol um, with a bunch of NRG cases that could run on 26 degree glycol. Well, the only two things needed 18 degree glycol. Me personally, I would have made those DX they were walk-ins. I mean, you would have saved way more if you could have, you know, got the uh, got the uh, suction pressure up. And we ended up floating off those things, and we were able to raise the glycol like eight degrees sometimes. You know, when those things are in defrost, we float the glycol temps up, and uh, you know, we save a ton of energy. And then the rack's more efficient, and then we have less case problems and pump problems. 
Yeah, you were talking a little bit about piping, and before I forget, like sometimes, so you guys are aware, um, on you know big big boxes and stuff, you'll see uh, typically in between the return and the supply, the solenoid will be up up in the up in the rafters, you know, before it goes in the walk in. Um, you'll see a a small line, usually a quarter inch line, between the return and the supply. That's to basically keep a flow of glycol cold, ready to go as soon as that case comes out of defrost. Because if you're going to shut up, if you're basically going to shut off the solenoid, you're not going to have any flow, right? Not going to have any flow of glycol, so that glycol is basically going to get stagnant. Um, they put that uh, quarter inch line there right before the solenoid to keep go to keep flow between the return and the supply. So as soon as that case does come out of defrost, it's nice and cold and ready to go so there's not really a delay for that box to come down in temperature you know sometimes they put circuit setters on them sometimes they'll put like just a little uh a ball cock on there and, and basically just meter it down a little bit i've never seen that really oh yeah it's usually it on on large? usually large. what's that is it all larger stuff like bigger solenoids uh yeah, I mean anything with anything with a with a large uh uh you know a large BTU load right because the, you know like I said before they don't want to make they don't want the glycol to basically get you know stagnant and warm sitting at the end of there. Uh, Whole Foods does it. Um, there's some independent. Uh, there was a company called Fairway Market that had it all over the place. Um, like I said, just just basically to keep keep the glycol. Nice and cold at you know right before the solenoid. So when that 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 thing does come out of defrost, it's you know it's ready to go. It's cold. So now that you bring that up, it brings up a funny story, which okay. uh, somebody here listening is probably not going to like me telling. But uh, <laughs> so glycol expands rapidly when it gets warm. Mm -hmm. So I mean, you got to remember, glycol is going to inc increase. When it gets warm, it's in, uh, it, it takes up more space. Mm -hmm. So don't trap it anywhere. It's one time I had this uh, apprentice, which he's now a journeyman I work with. Uh, he was like a first or second year at the time. We sent him to de-ice some glycol cases. So I told him, I go, hey, shut off both lineups. You know, there was two 36-foot lineups. I stuff. I go, by the time you're de-icing one lineup, the other one lineup would be uh, pretty much already de-iced. So him – you know, being his uh, apprentice self and didn't like to listen and the time. And uh, he valved off the uh, supply and return. Oh, uh, and he was taking like 130 degree water right from the meat department and the ice in the coil. Well, she let loose at a pro press, a two inch pro press joint right before it went in the wall. Oh, no. Just thank God it blew on the case side. And not the uh, rack side, but uh, yeah, he got uh, smurfed. Uh, it was everywhere. He learned a lesson. He blamed me partially. <laughs> he probably didn't explain it well enough. Oh yeah, that was that was what he said. You know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So he was. Uh, yeah, he learned a lesson. <laughs> I got yelled at. <laughs> But yeah, so don't trap glycol. It'll expand rapidly, you know, and uh, you will blow a joint. And uh, hopefully it's not ProPress. I mean, we that that was a big thing out here for a while is uh, we'll go over to piping real quick. So ProPress is great for repairs. 
like if you're capping something or doing something else. But pro press in the store, like if it's brand new, sucks. It uh, they tend to leak at times. I mean, I don't think they they're you know all they're cracked up to be. They're nice for some things, but uh, other things they are not. Um, the George Fisher pipe can absolutely suck it. I hate that. Like it is the worst idea anybody ever had is putting that plastic pipe or Mariplex pipe in a store. We have nothing but problems. There's leaks all over the place, and when they do happen, they're a nightmare to fix because now you got to let this glue cure, and however long it cures is however long the pressure rating is on it. So for every hour that glue cures, the pressure rating changes. So, I mean, we've done repairs and you know cut-ins and stuff on cases where we've only let it sit for two, three hours, you know, because we, we don't have time or we don't have uh, the stores want to pull the whole store for us to fix the main. So we end up having to cut it and glue it. There's also repair couplings for the George Fisher. It looks like a, you know, giant like a teeth on a clamp that you use. I'm not a big fan of them. I'd rather just glue it. But uh, that George Fisher pipe is a nightmare. Finding the fittings, just so you guys all know, they're metric. It is not Schedule 40 PVC. Do not put or at Schedule 80. Do not use Schedule 80 PVC with glycol. It will eat holes through the fittings. Schedule 80 uh, fittings and shutoffs are not designed for glycol and propylene glycol will actually eat holes in the fittings. We had a store where a contractor must have ran out of George Fisher stuff and uh, they piped the whole dairy cooler in, uh, in Schedule 80, 90s and everything. I think I've fixed like nine or 10 of them now. There's the whole store just randomly, they just start spraying out glycol, little streams. That's amazing. Hey guys, I want to take a break and talk about Westermeyer, one of our other sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Westermeyer Industries, the leader in oil management and pressure vessels for the commercial refrigeration industry. So there, there's usually pump stations uh, on these uh, on these systems. Um, they're compiled. Uh, they're compiled of usually one or two pumps. Um, usually both don't have to run at the same time, depending on the store was, was designed. Um, you know, they're normally ran off of VFD and they're trying to maintain a differential pressure. Um, this is done typically on the green shell stuff with the pressure transducers that are on the, uh, on the actual, uh, pump skid itself. I don't agree with that. I think that the differentials should be, you know, on transducers at the end of the loops. Um, you know, uh, you, you know, coming in, coming into the pump skid, you're going to hit a de-aerator. Um, basically, you know, that's to get any air that might be in the system out. Um, the vent that's usually on the top of the de-aerator is, is piped into the storage tank for the glycol that we use to actually fill. Um, and uh, they also have an extra tank. Uh, an extra tank, if anyone doesn't know, if anyone's not familiar with hydronics, um, it's a, a pressure tank that has a rubber bladder on the inside. Uh, typically, you pressurize it to 12 to 18 PSI. Um, always use uh, an air gas, preferably uh, uh, nitrogen, because if you happen to have the pumps get outside, um, you might have a low pump pressure in the wintertime because the basically the space is going to get cold. Um, 
and uh, you can you can potentially have a, a low pressure alarm on these things, um, and it not because you know because of a leak because that's typically when you're going to have the low pressure alarm. Typically, you're going to have the uh, what you can have a low pressure alarm from is if the bladder ruptures, or you know for some odd reason the bladder actually loses its uh, air pressure because basically there's just a Schrader and, and a tire fitting at the top. Um, you know, that's on your tire. And basically that's where you check the pressure. Anything you want to add? Yeah. So same thing. If you have, uh, if you're getting nuisance, uh, low or low glycol pump inlet pressure alarms. So a couple things, if you don't think there's a leak and you get there every once in a while and it's fine, it's up there and it's just bouncing all over the place, like spikes. Okay. A couple things. This is the way I'm going to approach this. Is the glycol too cold? Are we running too cold of glycol and we have too many cases shutting off? Are our largest cases shutting off together? Do we have defrosting issues? Meaning, uh, is there too many cases of defrost going at once? Generally, you end up with a glycol temp is too cold and you have cases shutting off. Okay, if all that's good, that's not happening. I'm gonna go over that expansion tank. Real quick test, the test that expansion tank is, just take a small screwdriver, just pop a straighter real quick. If air comes out, you're good. If glycol comes out, you're no bueno. You're not good. You're going to have a bad time because you got to change the engine tank. Or just tap on the side. Um, you know, I've already had one where it actually lost the air pressure through the straighter at the top. Tapped on the side, and it sounded solid, like it was filled up. Um, you know, basically, the, the straighter had lost its, its pressure. Um, so basically all I did was, you know, pop the nitrogen on the top, uh, isolate the extra tank from the system and basically hooked up, you know, cause everything on here, including the glycol system typically has, you know, quarter inch flares, just like your, uh, just like your gauges. So I hooked up a refrigeration hose that I use for, um, for glycol, uh, basically on the bottom of the extra tank, hooked it up to the bottom right before the, or right after the, uh, the shutoff valve that goes out to the system. So any kind of pressure that I was putting on the top of the extral tank was basically wanting to push all that glycol that was in the tank out because the bladder wasn't ruptured. It's not like I had glycol shooting out the top. I basically just had a leak on the Schrader, which decreased the pressure down to nothing. So the, basically the tank then filled up with uh, glycol. So like I said, I just you know closed off the, the extral tank from the actual system, pressurized the top with nitrogen, and then, you know, it was wanting to expand the bladder, which then pushed out all the remainder of the glycol that was, you know, pushing up against the bladder and ran that back into the storage tank on the top there. Yeah, so uh, um, that, that, that's a good way to do it. Another, another thing is you want to keep track of is uh, make sure these gauges on the racks are good the pump skids and stuff, make sure all those gauges are good. And then uh, we're going to go over filling real quick. So generally what they're uh, – uh, generally what uh, they do to fill these is they usually pipe into one pump or the or the return header. You need to really watch where the uh, fill tank is. So you have the fill tank above, and you need to follow it down because sometimes they'll bring the fill tank line into the uh, return header and you shut off the main return, you know, periodically to suck the glycol in, you need to create a vacuum, or sometimes they'll bring it to one pump. So you need to make sure that pump is running so you can suck it in. So you may have to shut that, 
that valve on that pump in order to suck it in. So that that's how you would add glycol. Um, sometimes I don't know why it does this or whatnot, but we have like three or four stores where we can't get the glycol to go in, and you have to pump it into the pump. I, I don't know why it just the pump won't suck it in. Uh, typically, because the check valve. So usually there's a there's a screen. Um, usually it goes uh, sc- out, out of the fill tank. It goes screen, swing check, and then you know piped in the pump. Typically, what I found is you know people not keeping the lids on the actual fill fill station. So basically, dirt and crap just gets sucked up in there. So you know you keep having a, a system that has leaks on it, and you know you're sucking in all that dirt with the glycol, and then it ends up blocking up that that strainer like that's right before the the swing check. That's what we. That's what I found anyway. Yeah, I have two of them. They were like brand new startups for me. I never could get it to go in from the beginning. Like you'd always have to pump it in. But uh, Milwaukee makes a great battery powered pump you could use. So, um, let's kind of go over some like type repair type stuff. So in these cases for like temp control, you're going to have a four bolt use a four bolt solenoid that you could use to, uh, and then you're going to use to control temp and defrost. So say you have a case icing up. So this is a big thing. Um, glycol lines and cases should be insulated. Absolutely. So that's one thing you, you're not going to defrost some of these NRG cases with the way they're set up. I mean, if those lines are get are cold, they're going to frost during the returns, they're going to frost up and they're going to get thick. And then that starts building across the coil. So that's one thing. Uh, glycol lines inside the cases need to be armor flexed because if you don't keep that frost off them, they build up and you're never going to de-ice. The other thing is um, a lot of these NRG cases, what ends up happening when you terminate on temperature, especially with glycol, you end up de-icing the middle of the coil first. So because of the airflow pattern, you end up de-icing the middle of the coil first, and then the sides of the coil don't get warm enough. So after a couple of terms defrost, now you've built up so much heavy frost on the end of the ends of the coil that it starts like building towards the middle. So if you see cases that are iced up only on the ends and like the first like foot in, you know, two feet in, it's enough to mess up the airflow pattern, but it uh, it's not iced up in the center that's why because it's terminating too early that's where uh you know you almost need a term sensor in some of those cases because uh you get this ice pattern on the end and you need to make sure that those uh all the way up to the coils are arma flexed that way you don't you don't get that extra ice build up and the solenoids are just cycling on for temperature they're energized for temperature and they shut off during uh, when it, the what temperature. So a lot of times, what I'll do if I'm testing one that's maybe bleeding through, you know, I'll, I'll defrost it, I'll let it pull down, and then I'll put a probe on the inlet and outlet, and I'll watch it, and I'll see what my TD is, and then I'll throw it through a defrost. And if it stays sort of like the same TD, then I know the solenoid's bleeding through. A lot of times, you can pull these things apart. They're just a rubber flapper in there and a plunger. A lot of times, this is a curly cute copper. There's, you know, some garbage, some junk. You can clean them out. You, if you're gentle enough, you can get them apart without messing up the rubber. If you pull it apart and the rubber diaphragm is ripped, the valve's junk, and you need to, uh, you need to uh, change out the valve. So this is one thing to keep in mind for that. 
if you are having case ice ups and they do look like that, that that's why. Um, yeah, and add that part, Brett. Well, I was going to ask, uh, you know, what manufacturer that you guys typically use? I, I've seen uh, predominantly par- uh, Parker water valves for that, yeah? Yeah, so just about everything is Parker water valves. We have some Danfoss stuff, too. Some Danfoss makes some water valves, too, but garbage. Yeah. Uh, actually, we just did some. We had a store where we had some constant, like, cycling issues and temp issues and uh, – we actually added some glass doors to a store and uh, they didn't do very much engineering at all. You know, they just, you know, slapped some glass doors on there and went, Oh, uh, these are glycol. We didn't know. We thought they were DX. So we ended up having a lot of problems with these cases because they uh, were overshoot. They were cycling hundreds of times a day on the solenoids. So what we ended up doing Sporland actually makes a stepper valve for glycol. Come on. Yeah. They don't, they don't advertise it very much. I don't know why, but uh, they make a stepper valve for glycol. We ended up running it off of uh, ESR application and uh, on the E2, and we had a stepper valve. Uh, we didn't do per case. We did the whole lineup, so we had to balance them still. It was kind of a pain with the circuit setters. We had to balance them more and kind of figure out what the GPM needed to be because now we're just basically guessing because we threw glass doors on there and – these cases were like 15 years old. So you went from a load that was probably like, I don't know, probably 18,000 18, BTUs to like 3,000. Like What's that? One of them was like 56,000 like, to like nothing. It was an entire like uh, 52 feet of dairy. So the <laughs> you went from having like six compressors running down like one. Oh, they actually did. So this rack was like kind of like an abortion, like half DX glycol rack. It, it's been stores been bought out three times by three corporate banners, and uh, you know it's been remodeled nine hundred times. And uh, we ended up having to put uh, so half the rack was glycol, half the rack was DX. Now half the glycol load have been taken away already. So now we cut it down to like uh, a third. Yeah. Uh, we ended up putting VFDs on the pumps. I ended up making it, you know, from constant flow to variable flow. It ended up being a real nice job. We we dropped off like five compressors off the rack. Well, hopefully that was a uh, uh, a non helical separator. Oh, it was a uh, so it got worse than that. It was actually a uh, store that was all screws that some contractor they lost all the screws and uh, they put in recips, pinched off the uh, sub cooler. And uh, they kept the old uh, separator in there. There must be probably close to 80 to, I, I would say, 70 to 80 gallons of oil in this rack. Holy shit. Not, not anywhere near the one, the one of my buddies took out of the, that store last week with 101 gallons. I saw that <laughs> where the site glass typically <laughs> looked like it actually looked like it had dye in it. Like that, that's what I thought it was at first before I read what it was. And I saw that it's got 101 gallons of oil. Yeah. It was one of my guys I used to work with before I came back to client pros. Yeah. It's uh, that's wild. When you're, when you're pumping it out with a, with a transfer pump, it's when you know it got, got, get a little, little out of control. <laughs> that's nuts. But yeah. Well, so, but I made a comment. I was like, you know, that's, you know, you figure what oils like about a hundred bucks a gallon, hundred, 110, maybe 120 bucks a gallon. 
So do the math, man. That's <laughs> like twelve thousand dollars. That house text. Nobody's watching anybody. Um, yeah, that, that stepper valve ended up solving a lot of problems for us. Like that thing works great. Sporlin doesn't really advertise it that much. I don't know why, but uh, that thing that thing works amazing. Um, what, kind of, what kind of controllers do you have to use with it? We just use multi-flex board. Okay. I just use the ESR application inside the E2. So just, just just like the standard ESR application, we didn't have to do anything. We just kind of you know obviously mess with the steps and you know program it like that. But, but uh, I mean, real easy. I mean, to be honest, like the, my lab, I don't work there anymore, but they were doing a lot of glycol remodels. They started using those valves more and more because uh, now if they put a case in, now they weren't paying an electrician to run a 120 volt circuit from the rack to cycle the solenoid on and off. They were pulling you know, a com cable or a uh, ESR cable over and just using that. Ended up cutting the, cutting the cost down from getting an electrician to it being pipe for work now and uh, pulling e uh, com cables. Yeah, because you can, well, one, you can free hang everything. And like typically, you know, if you run the ESR board on the, on the floor, I mean, you know, you, that's minimal, you know, minimal uh, uh, lines you have to run, you know, conduit and shit like that, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, you had to figure the fitters are putting up lines. So, I mean, generally, I just tag along the bottom of their lines with my uh, my cable. I'm trying to not make it look like the data guys did it. <laughs> so those guys just, I mean, they, they take free air to like a whole new uh, whole new term. Like those guys just, that, that, that shit's everywhere, crisscrossing the ceiling. You just got to so look at the data guy. It's all, it's all that matters. <laughs> so I, uh, I I learned a lot when I when I did uh, one of my first stores, and uh, you know I actually bought a book about low voltage, and I I learned so much, and and I remember uh, one of the biggest uh, biggest things because I was even I wasn't even like I didn't think I was close to the, to any kind of you know sprinkler lines, but I got my ass handed to me because I had uh, low voltage basically sitting right on top you know i, I you know it, i unfortunately I, I was i couldn't pull every single wire in the store but this guy had it set on top and i got my ass handed for me we had to we had to actually pull it back 100 feet and you know and, and rerun it so it wasn't even coming in close you know i've crisscrossed over so much stuff that never had a problem I know it's not right, but th there's sometimes in those ceilings. I mean, we have a chain store out here, and I swear you open up the ceiling, you're just like, oh my God, what is this? It's like a 1930s, two, 30s horror movie up there. It's just like crisscross stuff everywhere. Like, there's no way you're getting a good path. It's just like, well, it's it's up there. It's not, <laughs> not laying on the lights, it's not laying on the 460. <laughs> I got hit by a, a 120. Um, I think it was 120. I don't even know. I just started yelling. Um, it was at a certain gas station, and basically I, I was up there tracing out duck work because we were having a problem with the rooftop unit. And I picked up a, a, a you know a drop ceiling, and I'm 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 watching the wire nut fall off of the wire, and the wire come just nail me in the chest. And I just remember just yelling and just throwing everything. And I, I would, I just had it. I was like, I, I'm not going up there anymore. <laughs> not a fun time. Not a fun time at all. Yeah. So, um, a couple things: the glycol, like uh, 
going to like repairs and stuff, like it draining it out. So this has been a uh, issue too. So as you're draining stuff out to like add cases and stuff, you got to get some air in there in order to like get this stuff to flow out. So you'll be draining it out. You shut the pumps off. So you got to drain down the main. You drain down from the lowest point you could find. And hopefully there's some silcocks you could drain down to. And you want to drain down the lowest spot. Well, don't just go cutting into it because you need to get some air in that line because it'll get vapor locked. And you got to get some air in that line in order to get the rest of the glycol out. Just don't cut into it. I've seen this happen. You're going to have a bad time. So um, that's one thing to be really aware of um, is uh, you don't want to cut into that line and uh, without getting some air in there or else you're going to have glycol everywhere. So that's one thing. And then when you're going to fill it, always fill from the lowest spot and push all the air up you can and try to purge it that way. So that way you get all the glycol in there and you try to purge all the air at once because you're going to have to purge and you're going to be back there a couple days in a row, especially if you have to tear into a main. You're, don't be surprised if you're back there the next morning and then I would be back there the next afternoon before you know close up time. For us, you know, like 2, 3 p.m., you want to be back there so you don't screw the on-call guy and you're going to have to put some more glycol in there and or bleed some more air. Uh, because if you do open up a main, that's just going to happen. Now, if you're doing some, like, case work and uh, hopefully you should have ball valves on the uh, – splitting off in the cases, you should have ball valves. Just, just valve it off and drain it down from the low point. If, if you can't get it in a bucket, I guess it's going down the drain. I mean, it's technically safe to drink, so I wouldn't drink it, but I mean, it, it's, it says it's food grade. It tastes good on bagels. Oh, okay. That's, that's great. Um, <laughs> now, like we did some stores where we had to take some islands out. We were taking out uh, cases and uh, the wonderful contractor that did all these stores didn't put any shutoffs. So these cases came off the mains. They came out of the pit. And then the shutoff was at the top instead of being in the pit or above the pit. So there's no shutoffs for the glycol. So we're taking out one case and uh, genius salesman quotes this at uh, my shop, quoted it and you know, quoted them all the same. Well, didn't realize that uh, um, they, these were, uh, some of these didn't have valves in them. So, we're doing these. We got real good at them. What we ended up doing is we'd shut the pumps down. We'd bleed down the mains and we'd let them get vapor locked. And we'd whack the line off real quick with a Milwaukee uh, tubing cutter. And then we'd pro press a cap on or a ball valve and a cap. Be real quick. Do one line at a time. Now I repeat, you do one line at a time and then you do the other one. As long as you don't break the vapor seal, you're good. That's why we use the ProPress gun. Now, my buddy at another company went to go do one, and he got all the glycol out. He got the case out. He cut both lines, and then he tried to braze it. Well, he tried to suck the uh, glycol, the vacuum cleaner. That broke the, the vacuum seal, and he had a real bad time because it started shooting out of the floor like a geyser. And there's there was actually security cam video of it flowing out of the, the pit. It was it filled the pit. It was flowing out of that. Then it was flowing out of the store. And you see the zamboni going by, just bringing it up the front door. I mean, it was everywhere. 
So don't break the vacuum seal if you do do that. Do one line at a time, and the ProPress gun is your friend for that stuff. And just so you guys know, there there are different ways of having to do it. But besides playing Russian roulette, like Kevin was doing over there, you know, you can um, you can pay a company to actually come out and do. Uh, you know, they do basically liquid nitrogen. They wrap the line that you're trying to cut or put a ball valve on, and basically they'll freeze the fluid that's actually in there through the pipe. And then you know you can hack it off, and then basically you know be able to actually you know put on a ProPress fitting without you know hoping you don't <laughs> break the vacuum seal. Hey, you know what? I've played Russian roulette at 30 stores now, and uh, I've had 30 no no leaks. So because all you got to do is let the glycol flow through. If it does start going, and you got the ProPress on there, you leave the one end open. You let the glycol flow through it. And you pro-press it while the glycol is flowing through it, and you shut the ball valve off, and you're done. Works yeah. seven of the time every time. <laughs> is it one of those do what I do what I say and not what I do? Well, it depends who's, who, who you're with. I mean, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I've never had a problem doing it, but. Uh, don't go be cutting like a three inch main or something like with a sawzall and uh, you know, you're going to have a bad time. <laughs> I mean, glycol leaks are terrible, man. Like that is the nastiest stuff ever. And it just makes a mess. Refrigerant is expensive, but so is glycol. Like a barrel of glycol is like 2k. Is it really? Yeah. Well, that that's for nine. That's for 90. Uh, oh, 90 really? Yeah, if you want ninety percent, it's almost three k. Hmm. I mean, last it's probably more now. Last summer we had to buy thirty two uh, barrels of one hundred percent for a store, and I want to say the bill was like almost like close to like seventy to ninety k. Jesus, because we uh, we had a giant cooling tower store. the it, The whole store was a uh, a cooling tower loop. Every rooftop, every rack. There was three giant cooling towers. I think this thing held like we estimated, you know, maybe close to like two thousand gallons. I was going to say you'd have to do it depending on your mix, right? Because you're doing thirty-two fifty-gallon fifty-gallon drums, right? And then you basically multiply that a little bit more because you know you're you're doing the mix, right? Yeah, we're diluting it. So, but then the thing was. So here's the thing about pumping 100%. If you're trying to do it with a small jockey pump, three-quarter uh, horse pump, you're going to be there all day. So and we were going up a roof. So we had to go up a roof and 150 feet into the pump house. So And we had to drain it out. So, I mean, you got to remember, the racks are on this. We get two hours, three hours, so we can only get out. we get out like 15, 20 barrels, you know, 15, 16 barrels, and we'd have to add back like 15 barrels. We bought this pump. This German pump called the Overdorfer 5000. I, I don't know. I don't know if it, it was an Overdorfer pump. I don't know if that was the exact name for it, but this thing was a gear pump made for pumping hydraulic gear oil. It would drain a barrel of 100% in less than five minutes. And it was pumping it up two stories and across the roof almost 200 feet into a system. Wow. That's insane. It was that pump was so strong we had to put a bypass on it from the supply to the return because the hoses we got were only one inch and it should have had two. Um, we had to put a bypass in there so that way the uh, supply pressure didn't peg out. 
Like that, that, that pump worked great. I mean, we used to run it from a chemical company and they were charging us like, like eight, eight hundred to $900 every time we used it. So we ended up buying our own and it was better than the, that thing was great. It, we got paid for it the first time we uh, built a customer for it because this particular store, they had a glycol, they had that glycol loop. Well, somebody in their infinite wisdom put a PRV and a water makeup valve in the loop. Uh, hold on, PRV. Pressure reducing valve, like a U oh, like okay. boiler system back up in Connecticut. Yeah, yeah. So they, they put one of those on there and they set it at 13 pounds in the return. So what happened was, uh, I think uh, they had a crack in a heat exchanger or they uh, cracked the line on the roof because all the pipes were on the roof. Cracked the line on the roof, nobody knew because it was spraying out the drain and it was just constantly refilling with water. First, we got to like this Arctic blast in the winter a couple of years ago and the cooling towers froze. Because the whole system was pure water. Because oh, the, the racks went down and the cooling towers froze. The, it got too cold out. The cooling towers couldn't keep the heat in. The racks went down because the boiler was, was off. Because uh, the customer didn't want to pay for parts for the boiler. Mm -hmm. uh, whole store went down. And then, all, then the cooling tower bundles froze. Oh, no. Yeah, we cracked two, two bundles. That's not something you could just get a set overnight. Uh, one bundle was $32,000. <laughs> anyway, it would probably be double right now with the price of copper. Yeah. I'll tell you what, you, I don't know if you ever changed one of those bundles in one of those uh, uh, SPX recold towers. God, that sucks. Really? They use tar, black tar to put the tower together and try to get it apart. We had a crane uh cinched up on it on the top of the tower the guy the guy was putting on like a massive amount of pressure on this thing we're in there with sawzalls trying to cut away the tar to get to get the tower to pop apart first uh first job i had in the industry i did water treatment for industrial cooling towers and boilers and i was at a post office in pennsylvania and they basically they were like yeah we got we got water uh, water leaks all over this thing we want you to patch them so basically i was in there taking bolts out that were like not they didn't look like bolts they were they were all rusted out and shit and basically had to redo every bit of, of that tower that was leaking i was inside that cooling tower for about four days not a fun time no but uh i think it's gonna wrap up uh our uh glycol podcast uh if you guys got any questions just reach out to us in the facebook group and uh feel free to answer them if not uh Talk to you guys next week. Have a good night. Do I make myself clear? I'm sorry I wasn't listening. Ow! This is what you want. This is what you get. This is what you want. This is what you get. This is what you want. This is what you get. This is what you want. This is what you get. This is what you want. This is what you get. This is